Good morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Acts chapter 18. Today we're going to look at verses 22 to 19, 7. Acts 18, 22, 19, 7. Uh, next week we'll go back in Acts 18 and look at the first part of the chapter. So I'm kind of skipping ahead and then going backward. And then after that, we're going to take a break from Acts. We have been in Acts for like months and months. And so we're going to do uh, seven weeks on Ephesians chapter 6, the armor of God. And then I'm going to preach through the book of Colossians. And then I'm probably going to come back to Acts in the fall. So I'll eventually finish it. But, uh, you know, my... Focus kind of waves after 19 chapters. So not for you, but for me, I need a little bit of break. So I'm going to do something different. Let's go ahead and ask God to guide us. Father God, I'm well aware that this passage is probably the most theologically charged and debated in the book of Acts, we don't want to add to the division that exists in the first seven verses of chapter 19, but we ask that we would get clarity and that we would see what your word says, and accurately so. Guide us, we ask, in the name of Christ. Amen. When Betty Ann and I graduated from high school, we both applied to two colleges. We both applied to Wheaton and Houghton. And for different reasons, we both decided to go to Houghton. And so we ended up in a small Christian liberal arts school in upstate New York. It was out of the Wesleyan tradition. That's not my tradition at all. It never was my tradition, but it was my wife's. So she felt theologically at home there. I was a little bit of a fish out of water. Uh, Wesleyan is Arminian, and I had grown up in a more reformed Arminian combination. So it was really good to broaden my theological horizons to see a tradition that was not what I was used to and probably not where I ended up in adulthood. It was a great experience. Loved being there. And of course, I met Betty Ann, and we got married three weeks out of college. Winner, winner, chicken dinner. I win. <laughs> and so it was wonderful to be there. While I was a student at college, I majored in business and history. And... Uh, my history major was mostly reformational history, but if you're going to go to a Wesleyan college, you got to learn a little bit about John Wesley, and so I did. Some of you know Charles Wesley as an individual. You've sung many of his hymns. Well, John was his brother and the preacher of the two, the theologian of the two. Now, if you know anything about John, you know that he was an incredible evangelist. He was an individual who perhaps suffered in marriage. He and his wife married later in life, didn't get along, and you don't really want to imitate their marriage, but 
How he shared the gospel, John Wesley had probably few parallels. Historians tell us that on both sides of the pond, in England and the United States, he probably rode 250,000 miles in his pursuit of sharing the gospel with others. In addition to that, we are told that he preached 40,000 sermons in his lifetime. Now that is utterly impossible, except that he would preach the same sermon dozens, sometimes hundreds of times. They tended to be a little shorter than Andrew in length. And he would go from farm to farm and give a 10-minute presentation of the gospel and then move to the next farm, get the farm hands, and then the next. And so he did this about 40,000 times throughout England and the United States. His childhood was remarkably Christian. His father was a pastor, Samuel, and he learned some from his father, but his mother was the remarkable Susanna. If you know anything about Susanna, she is a remarkable, remarkable godly woman. She had 19 children, 10 of which made it to age two and beyond. So she suffered the, the pain of losing nine children age two on down. Of the 10 that made it past age two, this is startling but true, she personally daily, seven days a week, discipled each child individually. So you have 10 children spanning different time periods. She would take about a half hour with each child, discipling them in scripture every day, seven days a week until adulthood. When John got to age 17, he went to Christ Church. Now you actually know that as Oxford University. And there he received both a bachelor's degree and a master's degree. And then he went and taught at Lincoln College. He taught rhetoric and biblical Greek. After doing this for several years, he thought, I got to go over to the United States. I've heard about Native Americans and I want to share the gospel with them. So he became a missionary. He said that was a very difficult time in his life. He looks at it as a personal failure. And he actually wrote in his memoirs and his diary, I came to lead Native Americans to Christ, but who will rescue me? In other words, he was not born again. And he wasn't. Now think about this for a moment. He had a mother who discipled him a half hour every day for the first 17 years of his life. He went to Oxford in those days, a very gospel-centered university, and studied Koine Greek, biblical Greek and rhetoric. He taught it at a university. He was a missionary while he was at university. He was part of the Holy Club, which was a group of individuals trying to live out their faith, and he wasn't converted to Christ. He tells us that when he went back to England, he was invited to some lectures in Aldersgate, didn't want to go, finally went to Aldersgate Street. He heard the gospel and he said, there was a warmness in my soul and I believed in Christ. And there was given to me, very interesting word, the assurance of my salvation. That's an interesting word because he's Wesleyan. He's the founder of Wesleyanism, which is Arminian. You don't have assurance, but he apparently did. He had assurance of his salvation. 
So why do I give this opening illustration? Two reasons. First, I want to make an application. But second, it reflects on our text. Because here we have an individual that is in all sorts of spiritual light, and yet he is not redeemed. But my, my, my second point and the application point is this. Some in this room, parents, grandparents, have done all you can, spiritually speaking, for your children. You've taught them the gospel. You've lived out your faith. You've prayed for them diligently. You've taught them truth. You've modeled Christ. And they're rebellious. And they're not walking with the Lord. And it breaks your heart. And there's a lot of personal guilt over this. But I want us to remind ourselves that even the most godly homes sometimes have wayward children. The most godly of homes sometimes have wayward children. And so, of course, there's something more we could have done. That's true for all of us. But if you're living for the Lord, you're sharing the gospel, and you're living it before your kids, and they're wayward, let go of the guilt. Think of a Susanna Wesley, who has a child who's even a missionary and a professor and doesn't know Christ until later in his life. Well, again, he's a man, John Wesley, who is surrounded by spiritual light. And yet he has deficiencies theologically. That's what today's text is about. The first part in chapter 18 is about a man named Apollos. I think he's a born-again believer. I think the text lends me to believe that. He knows something about Christ. He knows something about the Lord. He's been trained in the school of Alexandria by probably Philo. He is probably a believer in Christ, but he has a great deficiency theologically. We're not even told what it is. It's just alluded to in the text. And God meets him where he is. And then when we get to chapter 19, which is the controversial part of the text, we have 10 individuals, actually 12, and they are, in my opinion, unbelievers who come to Christ. And I'll try and make that point in a moment. So let's pick up in our text. I want to read chapter 18, starting in verse 22, all the way to the end of the chapter. When he, Paul, had landed at Caesarea, that's Caesarea Maritima, there's two Caesareas in Israel. There's also Caesarea Philippi, but you don't land in Caesarea Philippi, it's landlocked. Caesarea Maritima was built by Herod in 20 BC. It's actually the first port city that does not have a natural port that was created into a port. 40 acres of water he made into a port that could house 300 ships in a day. It was an engineering marvel, especially in 20 BC. And when Paul had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. So he's leaving Israel and he's going to Turkey. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, he's from Egypt, came to Ephesus, that's in Turkey, he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. 
I think we'll learn that he probably, from Alexandria, studied under the greatest Old Testament scholar of his day, Philo. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He knew something of Christ. And being fervent in spirit, I think small s, just means he's eloquent. He's a good speaker. People like to listen to him. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. So he knew something about Jesus. Though he knew only the baptism of John. This is tricky. When we read the word baptism, we tend to think of water. And rightly so. But it's actually used more than one way in Scripture. And in this chapter and the next, baptism is not used as water. It's used as initiative. He was initiated into the teaching of John. And think the rest of the way through the passage. Clearly, if you read it in context, it can't be water. Not in many of the instances. And that's not how it's used here. It's just saying... He knew the initiation of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But when Priscilla and Aquila, Priscilla is a woman and a wife. Aquila is a husband and a man. They happen to be married one to another. When they heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. He had a theological deficiency. We're just not told what it is. And when he wished to cross to Ikea, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the, Christ, the scriptures that Christ was Jesus. Now this is the start of Paul's third of three missionary journeys. And Paul travels throughout Galatia and Phrygia. He is strengthening the churches and he meets a man named Apollos. Apollos is a minister. He has some theological holes in his theology, but he's speaking, he's eloquent, he's powerful. He's from Alexandria, almost certainly went to the University of Alexandria. That would be one of the three great learning centers in Europe and the Middle East. He almost certainly is trained under Philo because the scripture at this point is predominantly Old Testament. New Testament is being written, but has not yet been multiplied and disseminated. So he's learned from the greatest scholar of his day, He's learned from Philo. He's mighty in Scripture. And when he preaches, he's fervent. He's, he's accurate. He teaches accurately the things of the Lord, but there seems to be a hole. Verse 25 says, he knows only the baptism, the initiation of John. And so here we have a young couple. We're going to meet him next week. I've skipped ahead. I'm going to go back next week. And we're going to talk a little bit about Priscilla called Prisca. And Aquila. Now, they are married. They are mentioned six times in Scripture, three in Paul's epistles, and three in the book of Acts. And there's some unity about what we see of them. Five of the six times, she's mentioned first, he's mentioned second, which lends us to believe that she is the primary instructor and he supports her in some of the ministry. In addition to that, they're always pulling together. They're always serving together. This is what marriage ought to be. This is a model marriage. Aquila is encouraging Priscilla to take the next step in her walk with Christ. And Priscilla is encouraging Aquila to take the next step in his walk with Christ. And together they're advancing the kingdom of Christ. 
And so I've got to step back, and maybe you do as well, and we ask ourselves this question, if we are married, if we are in a marriage, and both spouses know Christ, are we urging each other on in Christ? Are any of us the weak link in our marriage? Being spurred on by the other, but dragging our feet. God designed marriage to help make us holy. God designed marriage to have a team to work together to advance the kingdom. And if you, I, we are in marriage, we've got to ask ourselves, are we upholding our end of the battle, our end of the deal? Are we encouraging our spouse to take the next step in one's relationship to Jesus Christ? Or are we the weak link and it's time we get moving? And if you're single, don't settle. Don't ever settle. If you desire to get married and you're a single, there's a greater desire, and that's to be faithful. And so you wait until God brings an individual into your life, if he chooses to do so, that will spur you on, that you can spur on, that you can be a team to advance the kingdom of God. That is Priscilla and Aquila, and it ought to be us as well. They are sold out for Jesus. Well, they go to the synagogue, and they hear this man from Alexandria named Apollos. And he's mighty in Scripture. He knows something of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's Alexandria trained. Being mighty in Scripture would be the Old Testament. And we have to remember, we have to remind ourselves that whether you're in the Old Testament or the New Testament, or kind of in between where we are right now in the text, nobody has ever been saved outside of faith in the Messiah. So if you're mighty in Scripture in the Old Testament, you are not saved through good works. You are saved by thinking of the Redeemer, the Messiah who's coming, who will pay the penalty of your sin. You may not even know the Messiah's name, but nobody has ever been saved outside of Messiah. And so in the Old Testament, they look forward to a Redeemer who would somehow pay for their sin. We in the New Testament or church age, we look back on Messiah and we know more about him, but everyone in all of history has been saved by believing in a Messiah who can pay the penalty of sin, which is death and resurrection. So he understood that. He knew something of Christ, but there's a deficiency. Now what happens today if we have a Bible teacher with a deficiency? Well, we get on Facebook and we tell everyone, he's a heretic, don't ever read anything he's written or she's written, stay away from them. But is that what the text does? Here we have a couple who don't embarrass Apollos, who's Alexandria trained. He's been to a pretty significant theological seminary. They don't embarrass him. They take him aside and they help fill in the deficiencies that he might be used mightily for the kingdom. Rather than write him off and disregard him as a heretic and letting everyone, all 300 and 
50 Facebook friends or some of you 3,000 Facebook friends know that he's a heretic, they took the initiative. They took the time. They built into his life that he might be used more mightily by the kingdom. I'm not only impressed with them, I'm impressed with Apollos. Imagine a couple listening to you and then coming up and saying, uh, can we teach you something that we think might be a deficiency theologically? And I can picture Apollos going, you gotta be kidding me. Do you know who I am? I'm Apollos, I'm Alexandria trained. I studied under Philo. I'm mighty in the scriptures. Uh, Who are you? But he doesn't do that. He listens, he learns. And then he takes the new theology and he applies it to biography because at the end of the text, what does it say? He then goes and he teaches some Jews who are resistant to the gospel that Jesus Christ is the Savior. And so whatever deficiencies he has, it has something to do with Christology, something to do with Christ, something he doesn't quite have. They share it, they teach it to him, and then he takes the theology, puts it into biography, and he lives out his faith. And I think it's that model that caused Dr. Martin Luther to declare that he believes that Apollos was the author to the Hebrews. I don't think he's right about that. But he looked at the humility. He looked at what this man was like. And he said that would be what the author of Hebrews, that would be the type of individual that Jesus would use mightily. Well, we've looked a little bit at Apollos and Priscilla and Aquila. Now let's look at chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. It says this. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, that is, he's in Greece, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus, Turkey. There he found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no. We have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? Into what then were you initiated? They said, into John's baptism, John's initiation. And Paul said, John initiated with the initiation or baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, not water baptism. Uh, How do we baptize according to Matthew 28? In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, not in the name of the Lord Jesus. They were initiated into the name of the Lord Jesus. They were taught about salvation by faith in Christ. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So like Priscilla and Aquila, Paul comes across these individuals who are seekers. They're interested in spiritual things, but I think they do not know Christ. Apollos I think he had enough light. He knew Christ. He just had some deficiencies. I think these 12 don't know Christ. Now this becomes theologically important because we have a denomination even represented in central Wisconsin that has taken the most controversial passage, 19.1-7, and they made this passage a preeminent doctrine in their denomination to teach what they call a second baptism what they argue is this. 
When you come to Christ, when you believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit enters into you. That's the first baptism. That's theologically true. That's true no matter what denomination you're a part of. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit comes into you and he becomes the down payment guaranteeing your future inheritance. God holds on to us. We are initiated into Christ and with Christ, the Holy Spirit enters us, never to leave us, never to forsake us. All Christian denominations agree with that. But one denomination goes one step further and they say these people have already believed in Christ. They already have the Holy Spirit in them. Now there is a second baptism, and this second baptism is the baptism necessary to grow in maturity in Christ, and it is evidenced by speaking in tongues and prophesying. In other words, if you do not speak in tongues and you do not prophesy, you can be a believer. You believe in Christ. You have the first initiation, the first baptism, but you obviously have not matured in Christ or you would speak in tongues and you would speak prophetically. What are we to say to this? Well, first, I want to argue very strenuously that these 12 are not believers. And I think the text will bear that out. I think the first thing somebody who believes in a second baptism would say to me is, Jeff, you didn't read verse one very carefully. They're called disciples. And a disciple is a believer in Christ. Is that true? How many disciples does Jesus have? All right, this is like, you answer. Twelve disciples. Twelve. Yeah. Not very good, but good. I'm glad you got it. Twelve disciples. Were all of them believers in Christ? No, one was a devil from the beginning, right? That would be Judas. In other words, you can be a disciple of mathe taste, that's the word, without believing in Christ. In fact, the word disciple can mean believer in Christ, a brother. That's actually how it's used at the end of chapter 18. Or it can just mean generally somebody who's seeking after spiritual truth. Judas was a disciple but wasn't a believer. We find the same thing in John chapter 6, verse 66. Think about that. 666, probably not good, right? In John chapter 6, verse 66, Jesus is preaching to a crowd. And they walk away. They don't believe. And what does Jesus say? He said, the disciples have laughed. Huh? They don't believe. But they're called disciples. He's using the word generically because the word is used specifically for brothers and sisters in Christ, but it's also used quite generically in Scripture for someone who is spiritually sensitive who may or may not know Christ. So just because verse 1 says that they're disciples doesn't mean that they're believers. But let me read to us from Romans 8, verse 9. The second part of it is what matters. Romans 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, that is, anyone who doesn't have the Holy Spirit, does not belong to God. That's a pretty strong statement. If 
The Holy Spirit is in you. You are born again. You believed in Christ. If the Holy Spirit is not in you, you have not believed in Christ. And the Spirit doesn't come and go in the New Testament era at all. He ascends and stays. He's the down payment guaranteeing our future inheritance in Christ. And so when Paul says, do you have the Holy Spirit? What do they say? Uh, we don't even know who he is. Who is he? They not only don't have the Holy Spirit, they've never heard of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, if you don't know who the Holy Spirit is, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you are not of God. These 12 are seekers. They're spiritually sensitive, but they don't know Christ. And so we don't have a second baptism, a second initiation into the Holy Spirit. We have a first initiation. They don't know Jesus. And when they pray and receive Christ, the Holy Spirit comes upon them for the first time. In a rather doctrinal passage, in Ephesians 4, 4 to 6, we read about a bunch of ones. Let me read it. There's one body and one spirit, just as you are all called into one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, not water, by the way, one initiation into Jesus, one God and Father over all, who is over all and through all and in all. There's nowhere in Scripture that we read about a second baptism. It's just not there. And so, whatever you do with tongues and prophecy, it has nothing to do with spiritual maturity. It was or is a spiritual gift, but it's not a depth of growth. You, Christ followers, have a spiritual gift. All of us do. We have one or more spiritual gifts to glorify God, to build up the body of Christ. Just because we have a spiritual gift does not mean that we're mature in Christ. We're given a spiritual gift or gifts at the moment of conversion when we're immature in Christ. And we've got to develop them and grow them. So just because we have a gift of tongues or prophecy, that doesn't mean we're mature in Christ. We have a gift of teaching or exertion. Exhortation doesn't mean we're mature in Christ. Or we have the gift of wisdom or knowledge doesn't mean we have maturity in Christ. A gift is something given that we have to develop and use, and in developing and using it, then we grow in maturity in Christ. And so there's not the second baptism that you come to Christ and you believe in Christ and you're baptized with the Spirit, and then if you grow in maturity, it's evidenced by usage of certain gifts, specifically tongues and prophecy, and that's called a second baptism. All of Scripture mandates against that kind of theology. So what does help you, I, we, to grow in Christ? It's the empowerment of God's Spirit to turn from sin. I think of Ephesians 5.18. Do not be drunk with wine, which leads to debauchery. And this is the part I want to listen to. But be filled with the Spirit. How do we mature in Christ? We're constantly saying, Lord, yesterday I was tempted in sin and I gave in. I kind of bare-knuckled it, and I am so weak, I'm a fool. I gave in. 
But today, will you empower me by your spirit that when I face the same temptation, I'll say no. Lord, I'm going to go share the gospel. You know I'm not good with my words. Will you, by your spirit, just give me the right words, the right demeanor, that someone might come to Christ? Lord, you know what I'm like with my, my tongue, my mouth. Man, I use it to slander, to gossip in such invictive ways, invective ways, uh, cruel ways. Lord, will you guard my mouth? That's the beginning of maturity. It's when we stop fighting all the battles on our own and we say, Lord, I need you. I need your spirit, which indwells me because I've accepted Christ. I need your spirit to give me the strength to live out the fruit of the Spirit, the love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control. I'm not going to do it well on my own. I've done this white knuckle stuff, this red knuckle stuff. It hasn't gone well in the past. It won't go well in the present or the future. I need to be empowered by you. That's what being filled with the Spirit is. I want to take it apart for a moment, make five little observations. The word filled is plerao. It's really not used in charismatic, non-charismatic, sign gift, non-sign gift areas. There is another word for fill, pemple me. If that were the word, that's always used in the giftings of the Spirit. So if that were in the text, I would say, well, all right, maybe we ought to relook at this. Maybe he is talking about certain gifts that help me to grow in maturity. No. He uses a word that has nothing to do with the gifts when he says, be filled with the Spirit, plurao. The second thing I noticed from the text is it's a command. It's in the imperative. We're commanded to be filled. We're never commanded to be baptized in the Spirit because it just happens at the moment of conversion. You and I have nothing to do with that. But we're commanded to be filled with the Spirit because we play a part. Now it's passive, we'll get to that in a moment. So God plays the majority part, but we play a part. What part do we play? We're asking for it. We're asking God to empower us to turn from sin and towards the Lord. But it is passive. God isn't interested in you and I white knuckling our way through Christianity because we're gonna make a mess of it. He says, Jeff, ask me. Ask me daily. It's kind of like the armor of God that we're going to look at. We ask for the armor every day. Lord, give me the shoes shod with the gospel of peace. Remind me of salvation through faith in Christ. Give me the belt of truth. I'm not really good at telling the truth. Give me the breastplate of righteousness. We're all tired of Jeff's righteousness. We need yours. Give me the sword of the Spirit. Help me to be in the Word. Give me the shield of faith. Because Hebrews 11.6 says, it is impossible to please God without faith. Give me the helmet of my salvation, my security. Tie it all together with prayer. That's the armor of God, and we ask God regularly for that. We ask God regularly to empower us. Fill us. It's not that the Spirit is leaving just empower us with the already present spirit to turn from sin and towards righteousness. It's also a plural. 
It's not just for few, it's for all. We're all to be asking on a regular basis, fill us with your spirit. And finally, it's in the present tense. It's the iterative tense. That's the tense of repetition. I only regularly need to say, Lord, I'm going to be tempted today. Lord, I'm going to have the opportunity to share the gospel today. Lord, I know what I've done with my tongue in the past. Lord, I know that I have this tendency to give in. Lord, today, this day, fill me. It's kind of like my car. My car runs on gasoline. And if it doesn't run on gasoline, I got to push it. I don't get very far. So I play a small part. I go to the gas station and pay for the gas. But the gas is what runs my car. It's the spirit working in me. And if I don't put the gas in my car, I got to push it and I don't get very far. If I don't ask the Spirit to work within me, then it's just me and I failed and I failed and I failed. And so God gives us the ability to regularly say, Lord, empower me by your Spirit. It's not a second baptism, it's part of the rites of the first baptism. When we believe in Christ, the Holy Spirit enters our heart. He enters our lives. And we have this privilege to say, Lord, I can't do it on my own. i got to regularly ask you to empower me to have the right attitude and action and thought and motive and stay away from the wrong activities that I may live for your glory. That's how you and I get maturity in Christ. Let's pray. Father God, uh, it's amazing that you would create us, amazing that you would sustain us, that you would redeem us through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, and you would empower us, not leaving us on our own to do this Christian walk, but just for the asking and the confession and repentance so that we're clean vessels, you would empower us to turn from sin and towards righteousness and to grow in maturity in you. Help us to grow. For the name, in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.